0: To start off this afternoon I'd like us to consider a question that atheists normally uh, commonly pose to those of religious faith. What might have to happen to stop you believing in God or putting your faith in the Bible? My brother Graham, who some of you may have heard of, um, was himself asked this question at work and he posed this question to me and to my cousin Roy who others of you might have heard of as well uh, what would have to happen for us to stop trusting in God and if we found an answer would we, betray, would we be betraying beliefs that we would held all of our lives and the three of us had, had a discussion we reached the same conclusion. There's, there's only one thing that would actually destroy our faith and leave us searching for meaning in the world. Uh, and we couldn't actually think of any other event that would do this. But if the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem were to be destroyed, if the Jews were to be destroyed, we would have no way to reconcile that event with our interpretation of the Bible, and we would be forced to, to discard or alter the entire system of our beliefs. On the other hand, every day that Israel continues to exist, our faith has a foundation. For a belief to be valid... To, to be based on something there must be some possible sent, set of circumstances to to, to invalidate it. Uh, it has to be based on something to, to be rational a belief must have testable parameters it must be provable or or disprovable or or both. It has to have a, a, a foundation and that's that's why atheists ask a lot of this que- uh, uh, this question a lot because because the common answer is no nothing and then they say well, well, there's nothing that can convince you then, you know, you're, 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 um, you're set and, and therefore you're, you're not rational, nothing can change your mind. But, um, but the point is that there is here. And uh, we're, we're going to finish off by, by looking at Israel. But first, perhaps we could think about what might constitute proof of a living God. Proof of God's existence is notoriously difficult to obtain. In my own life, I see God at work in the way my education, my career, my, uh, my marriage and, and many other aspects of my life have, have transpired. But I, I see no point in lecturing on the subject. Philip's life, proof of a living God, I'm already convinced and uh, it would probably bore everybody else. definitive proof of God's existence and nature cannot really be personal in that way. Um, um, The the proof will arrive when Jesus comes back to this earth and he begins to set up a global kingdom in in God's name. But until then, we have many aspects to to convince us, not only that, that God exists, but that the Bible is his book now, before God asks us to believe him, he always gives us a, a token something that we can hold on to. He gives personal prophecies uh, national prophecies and, and miracles to the uh, to the people who need them uh, for the next stage of his plan. Uh, So, for example, we touched on this this morning. Moses was nervous about speaking to Pharaoh on God's behalf. Uh, He said, They will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice, for they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. So God turned his rod into a serpent and back again, and then he made his hand leprosy and healed it. Um, and, And he did this so that Moses would know that God was with him. And that was enough to convince Moses that God would use him to free his people from slavery in Egypt. It took, it took a lot more to convince the Pharaoh of that time. And, and, um, and the ten plagues nearly destroyed Egypt as a nation. But Moses was told God's name and instructed to tell Pharaoh, this is what Yahweh says, to make it clear that he was speaking on behalf of God. And from the moment Moses began to speak using that phrase... He and his people were there to represent God to others, whether or not they wanted to. And Moses said, "This is what the Lord says: Let my people go." And then, of course, Pharaoh said, "No!" And God sent plagues on Egypt. Um, and and Pharaoh did need he, he needed many tokens of proof that God was going to do what he said, and and. Um, and it's interesting as, as to how it happened, the, 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 the ten plagues. The, the plagues weren't randomly destructive. They were each uh, specifically aimed at one or more of the Egyptian gods. Uh, and the first three plagues affected everyone in Egypt, including the Hebrews, including the Jews. The Jews had to be convinced of God's power too but the next six plagues only affected the Egyptians. The Hebrews saw these plagues but they didn't suffer them. The entire nation was being used as a message and both the Hebrews and the Egyptians were given an opportunity to respond. In the final plague, the tenth plague, which was the death of the firstborn. They were all given a choice. Each household and each nation had to decide how they would respond. And the ones who, who followed God's instructions and, and put the Passover uh, the blood from the Passover lamb over the over the over the door lintel, they avoided the plague. And the ones who didn't listen were hit hard. And this effectively put the, the the nation of I- egypt out of action for for ch- two generations two two generations of uh, of, of firstborns being being killed and, and the fact that the hebrews not only survived but they escaped and prospered secured their position as a witness to god's existence these events defined them as the nation called israel and so pharaoh was given many of these tokens of proof, many of these plagues, and every day in which he refused to acknowledge this proof that God was who he said he was and that he was going to do what he said he was going to do, every day he refused to acknowledge this was a day in which his people continued to suffer. And and from this we can actually draw a principle. We have to to balance our requirement for, for tokens of proof against the urgency of the message which in our case is that Jesus is coming back to alter the world suddenly and irreversibly and our tokens of proof are collected in the Bible which tells us where, where to look for them. The, the Old Testament contains prophecies about Jesus but after, after he had lived and, and grown and, and, and taught and, and healed and died risen again, his disciples were the ones who had the job of of telling people about it and they had to explain what had just happened and what was going to happen next and to do this, they themselves need plenty of of these tokens of of proof, we can can think about Thomas the disciple Thomas refusing to believe until he'd seen Jesus and and touched his wounds And, and we can contrast their attitude When they believed Jesus was dead. With their behaviour. How they acted once they believed he'd been raised. And Luke. Who wrote one of the gospels that tells us about Jesus. uh, Also wrote Acts. The Acts of the Apostles. And and that tells us about how this gospel message spread. Uh, And he begins his book of Acts. I wrote the formal account. Theophilus. About all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after he had given orders by the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. To the same apostles also, after his suffering, he presented himself alive with many convincing proofs. He was seen by them over a 40 day period and spoke about matters concerning the, the kingdom of God. So there we have it, there we have these tokens of proof for, for the disciples of that time. And for anyone reading that book, Lucas is, uh, is, is describing these these tokens of proof. And in the next chapter of Acts, in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter gives the first recorded speech by a disciple after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he begins with the tokens that he knows his listeners need to hear. He, he describes Jesus... Uh, uh, if you've got it there, it's, it's, it's verse 22. Um, otherwise, I can, I can give you references as well afterwards if you, if you prefer just to listen. Uh, he describes Jesus as a man clearly attested to you by God with powerful deeds, wonders and miraculous signs that God performed among you through him, just as you yourselves know. So in each of these passages, individuals or groups of people are given small tokens of proof uh, as as, as proof of, of, of a much larger truth and, and God give, uh, gives us many case studies of this throughout the Bible. The Bible makes many promises about Jesus but we don't expect to see him until he returns. It makes detailed prophecies about ancient nations and, and empires but we need a, a good grasp of history to, to really appreciate those. It makes detailed prophecies about the present too, but we need a a really good grasp of world politics and Bible prophecy to benefit from these. But the existence of Israel is so simple and so obvious that we can't afford to overlook it in our search for truth. It is a token of proof to everyone who needs one the chapter we, we read to, to begin with it describes the uniqueness of the nation of Israel when uh, when these words were spoken, they'd never had a land they'd entered Egypt as a large and prosperous family, but they exited Egypt as a sizable nation. they remembered promises to Abraham and Isaac and, and Jacob and their forefathers that God had picked out a land for them and that they would bring God blessings on the whole earth. They, they'd wandered about for a generation until almost everyone who had left Egypt had died on the journey. And now they stood just east of the River Jordan at the border of the land God had promised their ancestors. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses speaking to them about their history to prepare them for their future. And they didn't instan- they, they they weren't standing in front of an empty land. They were about to, to fight powerful and long established nations for their territory. And if you uh, if you still have um, you know, if you still have the uh, the uh, the chapter open there, Deuteronomy 4, um, verses five to eight describe Israel's function, Israel's part in God's plan. Look, I have taught you statutes and ordinances just as the Lord my God told me to do, so that you might carry them out in the lands you're about to enter and possess. So be sure to do them, because this will testify your wise understanding to the people who will learn of all these statutes and say, indeed, this great nation is a very wise people. In fact, what other great nation has a God so near to them, like the Lord our God, whenever we call on him? And what other great nation has statutes and ordinances as just as this whole law that I'm about to share with you today? So it's clear here that Israel weren't going to be the the exclusive beneficiaries of God's favour. But messengers to the whole world about God. They were always meant to do this, whether, they actually, whether or not they actually did what God wanted. Uh, and after, they, uh, after Israel crossed the, the River Jordan, they besieged and, and conquered a city called Jericho. And none of the inhabitants survived except the family of Rahab, a prostitute who risked her life to shelter Israelite spies when they, they came to the city. Uh, if, you, if, uh, if you want to, to turn to Joshua um, chapter 2, uh, she explains why she did this. She explains her motive for her actions. It's, it's jo- Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Again, if, uh, uh, I can just read it too if, you're, uh, uh, if you prefer not to, to turn up. Joshua's chapter two. Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. I know the Lord is handing this land over to you we are absolutely terrified of you and all who live in the land are cringing before you we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you left Egypt and how you annihilated two Amorite kings Sihon and Og on the other side of the Jordan when we heard the news we lost our courage and no one could even breathe for fear of you for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. So Rahab was the only person in this doomed city of Jericho to take the right action to save herself and her family. But everybody had got the point. Israel's existence proved that God was alive and working with his people. And much later, when the nation had been in this land for centuries and the kingdom was divided and corrupt and, and the curses of Deuteronomy were, were beginning to be felt the prophet Isaiah reminded Israel of, of, of their purpose uh, the reference here is, is Isaiah 43 and verses 8 to, fir- 8 to 13 bring out the people who are blind even though they have eyes those who are deaf Death, even though they have ears, all nations gather together, the peoples assemble. Who among them announced this? Who predicted earlier events for us? Let them produce their witnesses to testify they were right. Let them listen and affirm it is true. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may consider and believe in me and understand that I am he. No god was formed before me, and none shall outlive me. So again, verse twelve, "You are my witnesses," says the Lord, "that I am God." And later still, near the end of Isaiah's life, Israel needed reassurance that they were still God's people and that He was still working with them. And the land was in a, ster- a terrible state by this point. The, the people had. had Fallen to to worshipping all sorts of horrible idols, false gods who demanded child sacrifice and ritual prostitution, and and God had been punishing them by sending other nations to attack them. And there was a good king called Hezekiah on the throne at this at this point. The, the large northern king of kingdom of Israel had been destroyed, and the land repopulated with foreign nations, less than you know, two decades ago and Hezekiah ruling from Jerusalem had watched as Sennacherib of the Assyrian Empire had, had brought his armies to to just rampage around his, his, his small kingdom of, of Judah and Sennacherib knew that Hezekiah's rule as king was defined by his regard for God so he sent messengers to Jerusalem to to weaken the people's resolve, uh, and, and this messenger refused to speak privately, but he he shouted for all the all the citizens in, in Jerusalem to, to hear. Um, it's in uh, Second Chronicles uh, thirty two verses ten to eleven. This is this is uh, this is uh, Sennacher's messenger shouting to to Jerusalem. Why are you so confident? That you remain in Jerusalem while it's under siege. Hezekiah says the Lord our God will rescue us from the power of the king of Assyria. But he is misleading you. And you will die of hunger and thirst. Then in verse 15. Now don't let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you like this. Don't believe him. For no God of any nation or kingdom has been able to rescue his people from my power. Or the power of my predecessors. So how can your gods rescue from my power? Um, there's another record of these events as well it's in 2nd uh, Kings it's actually 2nd Kings 18 we're told that the Sennacherib even claimed that God had told him to attack Jerusalem but Hezekiah reacted the way he reacted to, to this kind of assault on his God was a public act of faith he, he took the letter that said these things he took took the letter up to to God's temple, and he symbolically spread it out in front of God. He put all his faith in God, and Isaiah told him not to be afraid. And shortly after this, a large uh, portion—this is in Second Kings nineteen—a large proportion of uh, Sennacherib's arm, army was 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 just killed completely were uh, we're giving no no details other than that God's messenger did it and Sennacherib received words uh, that that uh, his home his homeland was being attacked and, and he took uh, he took what was left uh, of his army and he left and he never came back never came back to Jerusalem because his sons murdered him for for his throne uh, so so that's what happens if, if if you stand against God's witnesses. And, and you can imagine how much of a, a witness that would have been to the nation surrounding, to see what happened to this hugely powerful nation, this massive army, and this this hugely powerful king. And the history the history of the king of Israel has, has lots of examples of faithful individuals, but it also has a history of, of decline and degeneration and when when the kings of, of israel no longer worship god he, he he put an end to to this kingdom that was already divided and this is where where deuteronomy and moses become relevant again so deuteronomy 28 is a list of blessings and cursings uh, and curses that um that moses spoke to israel um on God's behalf, the, the blessings describe what would happen if they obey God, and the curse is what would happen if they disobeyed. And in their long history, they did both a number of times. And it's possible to to point to examples of every single blessing or, or curse from this long chapter. Uh, one of the most important for us is the curse about the nation being taken into the into captivity. It's a uh, uh, if you're there in Deuteronomy 28 verses 36 and 37 the Lord will force you and your king whom you will appoint over you to go away to a people whom your ancestors have not known and you will serve other gods of wood and stone there you will become an occasion of horror a proverb and an object of ridicule to all the peoples to whom the Lord will drive you in nearly a thousand years after Moses spoke these words it happened first Assyria and then Babylon descended in waves from, from the north and they, and they took the Israelites captive and in, in 586 BC they destroyed Jerusalem and there are many prophecies about this because God sent many prophets to warn his people and, and that was a last resort to preserve them really when um, taking them out because it stopped them becoming completely indistinguishable from the nations around them. But even though God's people were in captivity, He wasn't finished with them. And He makes this clear uh, if you want to turn to Jeremiah 31. We'll spend a bit of time in Jeremiah. Uh, Jeremiah 31. Uh, so he's making it clear that he's not finished with his people and, uh, and he describes credentials as well uh, it's Jeremiah 31 and, and verses 35 to 37 the Lord has made a promise to Israel he promises it as the one who fixed the sun to give light by day and the moon and stars to give light by night He promises it as the one who stirs up the sea so that its waves roll. He promises it as the one who is known as the Lord who rules over all. The Lord affirms, the descendants of Israel will not cease forever to be a nation in my sight. That could only happen if the fixed ordering of the heavenly lights were to cease to operate before me. The Lord says, I will not Reject all the descendants of Israel because of all that they have done that could only happen if the heavens above could be measured or the foundations of the earth below could be explored says the Lord now these are incredible verses because God takes he stakes his control of the sun, moon, stars the, the day and night cycle heavens and earth against the claim that Israel will survive that's, that's how important Israel is to, to God. And if we need a token of proof of God's existence, this is the one that he wants us to notice. God picked a land and a people, intimately connected. The, the people without the land and the land without the people are, are useless to us as, as Bible students. Um... The, the point was, was made plainly uh, just in the first two verses of our reading in, in, in Deuteronomy 4 that it's a land it's, it's, it's a people in a land and, um, and people kind of try to, to get around this a little bit there are many theories about the, the lost ten tribes of Israel because um, uh, because of those that uh, the Assyrians t- took away during Hezekiah's time uh, But here's what God says about it. Uh, If you're still in Jeremiah 31. It's just verse 33. Just a couple of verses earlier. I will make a new covenant with the whole nation of Israel. After I plant them back in the land. Says the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and minds. I will be their God and they will be my people there's no room for discussion there. God is focused on Israel, both as a nation of people and as a land. And that focus will not waver. And Israel, when they were in captivity in Babylon, they did a remarkable thing. Instead of losing their national identity, they kept it. They kept their national identity in Babylon and they defined themselves by it. And the book of Daniel covers this period of, of captivity and it's full of the ways that he and his companions refused to become Babylonians. And they stayed they stayed Hebrews and, and they continued to worship God. Uh, but of all the prophecies, I'd, I'd like to stay in Jeremiah. <coughs> We've been moving uh, backwards through the book a little bit, so... We'll skip back a little bit more to chapter 30. And this whole chapter is about Israel surviving captivity. Verse 3 clearly states that God will restore Israel. So verse 3, I, the Lord, affirm that the time will come when I will reverse the plight of my people Israel and Judah. says the Lord, I will bring them back to the land I gave their ancestors and they will take possession of it once again. Verse 9 tells us that that they will be ruled again by a descendant of their second king, David. And verses 21 and 22 elaborate on this. Um, One of their own people will be their leader. Their ruler will come from their own number. I will invite him to approach and he will do so for no one would dare approach me on his own. I, the Lord, affirm it. Then you will again be my people, and I will be your God. Now this is especially interesting to us, because some of it hasn't happened yet. Israel did return from captivity in Babylon about uh, about five centuries before the birth of Jesus. They did have rulers, but none of them were descended from David. The most famous rulers, the, the Maccabees, were priests from a different tribe. But when Jesus was born everybody knew that he was heir to the throne of David which is why he's often called son of David in the New Testament. But he didn't defeat the the Roman rulers and and set up a throne like everybody expected him to. Instead he died on a cross. Israel were defeated again by the Romans less than 40 years later and Jerusalem was destroyed. And later still Emperor Hadrian Renamed the province uh, of Israel Palestine after Israel's ancient enemies, the, the Philistines. And this time they weren't taken to capture into one place, but they were scattered throughout many nations. And their their history during the next eighteen hundred years is fascinating. The length of time for which the Jews, without a land, held on to their national identity, is unmatched by any other nation on earth. If you compare it to Assyria, Babylon. Medieval Persia, yeah, all, these, all these ruled lands for far longer than Israel, which only had a king for, for about 500 years. But all these empires are, are now gone. I mean, um, there's not really an Assyrian government right now, um, or a Babylonian government. It's, these places aren't, aren't on the political map. So, throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is a, is a token of proof of God's existence to themselves and to other nations. Israel is also our token, a sign we watch for reassurance that God is there. And During the centuries after Jesus, Israel not only held on to its national identity, but it returned into its land. On the 14th of May 1948, the State of Israel was reformed in Palestine. Jews from all over the world began to return to a home that many had never seen. This had been happening for, for well over a century, but it gained huge momentum with this political recognition of Israel. Uh, and once again, the land had been occupied for, for centuries by other nations. And, and once again, this caused immediate war uh, because many Arab people had been disla- displaced from their homes. And uh, the 1948 war, was actually a continuation of a a Jewish and Arab conflict that that had been going on for years. And Israel was in danger of of lasting only days as a new nation, but it survived. In just over a year, the Jewish population exceeded one million. And the state of Israel survived again in June 1967. When the overwhelming military forces of Egypt, Jordan and, and Syria attacked and in fact, from this war it, it expanded its borders and recaptured Jerusalem for the, for the first time in, in nearly two millennia and it did this over the course of six days, six day war. And again, in October 1973 Israel was attacked at its weakest during Yom, Yom Kippur and, and although it was less successful, it survived. A combined attack by Egypt and Syria. And it continues to survive. And it continues to trouble not only the, the nations around it, but the, the powerful nations to, who supply weapons to Israel and also the ones who supply weapons to its enemies. Now the prophet Zechariah, as <coughs> in chapter 12, um, describes Jerusalem as a cup That brings dizziness. To the surrounding nations. And warns. I will make Jerusalem a heavy burden. For all the nations. And all who try to carry it. Will be seriously injured. Yet all the peoples of the earth. Will be assembled against it. And together the prophets. Paint a picture of the nations of the world. Gathering together against Israel. And focusing their attack on Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is is easily right now the most problematic city in the world it's sacred to, to Jews, Muslims and Christians and God describes the next stage of his plan with Jerusalem in Zephaniah uh, Zephaniah chapter 3 verses 8 to 9 if you're interested in the reference therefore Wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey. For my determination is to gather the nations, that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them my indignation, even all of my fierce anger. For all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then will, will I turn to the people a pure language, that they may all call upon the name of the Lord, to serve him with one consent. So I get straight to the point of this gathering and, and this, this wrath to unite the world, first in anger against Israel, and then in desire to worship God together. And uh, Zechariah continues the, uh, the prophecy, uh, so this is, this is uh, in chapter 14 of Zechariah, uh, in verse 4. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, Olives which lies to the east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in half from east to west, leaving a great valley. And in verse 9, the point of the whole prophecy, the Lord will then be king over all the earth. We've hardly touched the, the, the New Testament this afternoon. But that's where we find out the identity of the person whose feet will touch the Mount of olives. The one who rules in God's name over the earth. In Acts 1, the disciples of Jesus watch him as he is lifted up into the sky until he's obscured by clouds. And they stare into the sky wondering what to do. And they realise that two men in white clothes are standing next to them. And these men say... In Acts 1 and verse 11 if you're interested Why do you stand here Looking up into the sky This same Jesus Who has been taken up from you Into heaven will come back In the same way That you saw him go into heaven So we know that it's Jesus Who will come back It's his feet that will land On the Mount of Olives As was described in Zechariah that's, That's when things will get really interesting So the history and the current situation of God's chosen people is, is fascinating. and The prophecies are, are exhi- they're exhilarating because they work. They, they, they fit together from the big pictures to, to the tiny details. It's the study of a lifetime and it's endlessly rewarding. But the truth is simple and so is the point of this talk. As long as Israel exists, I have all the proof I need to continue to trust that a living God works with the nations of the world and that no matter how bad the global situation looks he is in control